Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this Royal Academy event. My name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the RA's architecture programme creator and I'll be chairing uh, this evening's discussion. Just before we begin, I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge a great loss to British intellectual culture, Lisa Jardine, who sadly died yesterday. Anyone who came across her know that she combined the formidable intellect and prodigious volume of research with incredible warmth and generosity that was apparent when we had the pleasure of of having her speak at an architecture programme event last year. She was that rare thing in Britain, a truly public intellectual. This evening's debate is part of our architecture and freedom season, uh, which began in September with lectures by Jürgen Meyer, the German architect, and Patrick Schumacher, director at Zaha Hadid Architects. Those two lectures saw pretty uncompromising arguments put forward about architecture's relationship to politics, ethics, and ultimately its public role. And in many ways, it's the latter which will be our main focus this evening, though I suspect with important implications for the former as we explore spaces of freedom. So what you're probably thinking is a space of freedom? Well, as I've been working conceiving this event in the season, I've come to see it as somewhere where the fundamental rights that freedom enables are guaranteed, the right to expression, to assembly, to a political voice to a stake in a collective culture or society, to privacy, and so on. Usually this is seen as synonymous with public space, though I hope one of the outcomes this evening will be to test that association, reveal a rather greater complexity than is ordinarily assumed. I'm just going to bring in a little sort of interesting uh, historical anecdote here uh, about Kennington Park. Some of you may know it's near where I live in South London. Until the mid-19th century, it was known as Kennington Common. Uh, But in 1848, it saw a rally attended by thousands of chartists demanding the extension of suffrage and major electoral reforms, including things we now take for granted, like secret ballots and uh, payment of MPs. This rally, with its proximity to Westminster, Kennington's just across the river, and the political and social upheavals the chartists proposed worried the authorities so much that four years later, the Kennington Commons was enclosed literally with railings and gates, and two years after that became a park under the control of the Crown Office of Works. While Kennington Park remained a public space, it was now subject to a series of controls that precluded the Chartists or anyone else from holding such a rally ever again. If there are many different degrees of spaces of freedom in the physical world, The digital sphere, at least in its early incarnations, was heralded as a space where freedom might possibly be universal. Yet, as we've seen in the last few years with the Edward Snowden revelations about the NSA spying and uh, data collection and, in many instances, the complicity of major digital corporations, the reality is something quite different. And even more so when we realise that while many internet services that we take for granted are free to use, the business models that sustain them depend on the collecting and commercialisation of our every digital interaction. So in a world where everything is recorded and via hacking readily available, I think the Talk Talk data breach last week is just the latest example, privacy simply cannot exist. So the question which underlies this evening's debate is whether this situation has the effect of making physical spaces of freedom ever more important if they are, in effect, the only ones possible. So I'm really delighted to be joined by a fantastic panel this evening. Let me now uh, introduce our first speaker. I'm going to introduce speakers um, as we go along. Uh, Leslie Topp is the Senior Lecturer in History of Architecture at Birkbeck. Leslie. Thanks, so, and Thanks so much for organising this fascinating debate and discussion, I think. As Owen mentioned, I'm a historian of architecture and a a historian of urbanism, and I'm very interested in the history of this link between space and freedom. So I thought it might be useful as the first speaker to sketch out some key issues, particularly as they relate to to, uh, the history of cities. The relationship between freedom and space has been a central issue 
in the history of modernity and of the city over the past two centuries. It's extremely complicated and shifting relationship, which is subject to competing interests. And those competing interests really affect how we understand the connection between space and freedom and modernity and how we write its history. So its history will look different depending on which perspective you're looking at, at it from. A central Enlightenment value was, of course, individual liberty or freedom. Part of this was freedom of movement, the freedom from spatial constraints tying people, goods, and knowledge to any particular place and excluding them from other places. There was a strong impetus, therefore, to remove barriers blocking this freedom of movement, so barriers to trade, bureaucratic or traditional barriers to the movement of peoples, and, of course, physical barriers, things like city walls, the dense pre-modern urban fabric that prevented people from getting through and moving through the city. So in the mid-19th century, to pick up from uh, Owen's introduction that mentions uh, a 19th century phenomenon, in the, the mid-19th century you have the prominent um, urban planning interventions, really the beginning of what we now understand as urban planning. In Paris you've got uh, Napoleon III with his um, civil servant Baron Haussmann, known as the first master planner, opening up, clearing space, turning places into nodes of relation and removing their specificity, turning streets into pure conduits of flow and voids for ventilation. So the creation of of open space, of uh, spaces of movement, freedom of movement and of gathering in the city. In Vienna, the city walls are torn down in something that was both a practical and very symbolic gesture, to make way for a wide boulevard, the Ringstrasse, along which major monuments of democracy were built, um, monuments of democracy, learning, and culture, such as the parliament, city hall, university, theaters, museums, all monuments of liberalism of the 19th century. Um, They, in a kind of built representation of the rise of liberalism, with its emphasis on freedom from arbitrary power, um, freedom from the rule of the monarch and the church and the military. Urban planning could be seen from that perspective as a kind of freeing up of space for individual mobility in both a literal and a more metaphorical sense. Individuals can move around, are not tied to place, can also move socially, can reinvent themselves. Now, of course, this history of the connection between space and freedom in the modern city takes for granted a bourgeois individualist position and can look very different from another class position, which might value community and solidarity, for instance. Those wide boulevards in Paris and Vienna made possible efficient military maneuvers, um, connecting up the city so that armies could get from place to place to suppress revolution, for instance, which was, of course, an incredibly important um, concern in the 19th century with the, the legacy of 1848 and the revolutions across Europe being very alive. And then, of course, older, denser neighborhoods are cleared and working-class populations dispersed. The power of barricades, the power to uh, block off a street and to make it into a a site of revolution is undermined by by Haussmann's uh, interventions, for instance. Um, But there's also a, a less direct, more subtle, and more pervasive way in which the tools of urban planning are also tools of control. That opening up of the city is also a gesture of making the city visible, of course, a tool of knowledge of the population um, that is part of, of urban planning. So you get the bureaucracy of planning legislation with its restrictions and inspections, Centralized services are provided, sewage, electricity, telephones, all of which require a knowledge of who's living in the city and where they are, an oversight um, that leads to a kind of surveillance. Public health measures are very much associated with uh, the clearing of space in the city. And this works hand-in-hand with the extension of social services, welfare, medical oversight, criminal justice system, etc., all of which involve the making visible of personal individual lives in the name of knowledge that is also a type of control. And these will all ring a bell, of course, with any of you who have read Michel Foucault and his notion of biopolitics and governmentality. I would argue that it's worth trying to keep these two impulses in balance in our understanding of the city and of public space then and now. 
So I'm not suggesting with Foucault that anything that looks like freedom in our spaces is in fact some kind of control cleverly disguised. Freedom and control are relative terms. And the positing of a free space always has a certain set of values and a certain set of politics that are allied with it. So something that is free for a certain group of people will be not free for another group. And I think a a pure free space is, in my view, impossible to imagine. Um, Since the 19th century, the ways in which space has been connected with freedom have become even more complicated and remain so now. Um, Just to choose one example of that, of maybe a a resonance in in the... uh, um, in the contemporary world, or almost contemporary, a few years ago, uh, Occupy Wall Street, as it, as it manifested itself in New York City, um, was an occupation of a, a kind of um, strange hybrid type of space that I think Anna is going to be talking about later, a privatized public space in New York City, um, that was also at the same time uh, uh, a place of both located physical activism and digital activism, activism in the, the, the digital sphere and social media. I would argue the reason Occupy Wall Street had such an impact and was so effective on one level is that it was done really in the full knowledge of the existence of tools of control, both in the physical urban space and in the digital realm. But both those realms were claimed for freedom in an active sense, uh, in the knowledge of, of the control that was there. They were claimed as free spaces if only temporarily. Thank you very much, Leslie. So next we have James Meek, who is a novelist, journalist, and author of the book probably most relevant for this evening's discussion, Private Island. James. Thanks, Owen. There are three concepts, I suppose, um, by which you can interrogate a space to judge whether it's public or private, free or, or unfree. And the first is access. There's obviously a huge range of, of possibilities there, and it doesn't, the access is not necessarily directly related to whether a space is privatised in the conventional sense or not. Many of the greatest public spaces, the central public spaces in, in cities, are constantly opening and closing. Uh, railway stations, um, they uh, have not yet been completely privatised. They were for a time, they're not anymore. Um, but whatever their status, they, they will close. Um, airports will close. Uh, if you want to talk about a completely free space, which is always open, anyone can enter it or leave it, there is no charge, then the street. That is the, uh, that is the, the, the standard of, um, of where you may enter or leave. There is no qualification. Um, you are not checked as a rule. Um, unless there's a special um, order in, in place. Um, you do not have to pay a fee. Uh, they haven't privatised the streets. So the streets, the squares, they're still um, completely open. But there are many, many other um, spaces which, even though they open and close, uh, they come and they go, uh, there's still the possibility for, for um, public gathering. And that feeds on into the next uh, quality, which is, which is control. Um, and you can make a clear distinction between a space where in some way, no matter how remote, how obscure, how indirect, the, the public at large do have some control over what is done with the space. As a rule, the, the ideas of, of community participation and consultation uh, and... Uh, the idea of calling something a public space. Well, often when you actually examine it, uh, the chain of control is very, very tenuous, very thin. In order for the individual who simply wants to um, do something on Trafalgar Square on one particular day and for some reason is prevented from doing it, the, the chain of events which would require that person to actually make some kind of change on a fundamental level would be very long, very slow, very complex. It would have to involve elections, MPs, campaigns, just to be able to make some change. But still, the fact that the possibility is there makes that a special kind of space, the fact that there is some kind of of public control. And the last quality 
And this is the, the most subtle and, um, and hardest to, to grasp. Um, but it's one on which the other two sort of depend, is, is the quality of, of care. The care of the space, the care of the people who um, own, maintain the space for the space itself, questions of neglect and maintenance and simply the way that the space is, is organised and, and looked after. So care for the space, but also care about the population as, as a whole, about uh, what people think of what is done with the space. Is the care of the guardians of the space for what people think purely about money? Is it purely about brand? Or is there something more transcendental? Is there a sense of care for what people think about what they're doing, for a sort of peer esteem for the actions that you are taking? A consideration that I want people to think well of what I, that we, the guardians of this space, have done, are doing. Um, or do we not really care? Are we simply trying to get as much money as possible out of this, out of this space? So I think that is the... Um, is the most important one. And building on that, a critical element of um, the understanding of spaces of freedom is that you can't treat them in isolation. Uh, it's no good being able to do whatever you like on Trafalgar Square, for example, if you're kettled in at every exit by a vast ring of, of riot police. Space open space, spaces of freedom, it only works if it is part of a network. And the insidious way in which the, uh, the privatizers, the marketeers, are beginning to nibble away at the network of, of free spaces in, in cities like London is that they are beginning to, to take over connections between one space and another. So um, a shopping centre like Westfield, for example, will be built. Uh, it becomes a, a main thoroughfare from one place to another, from Stratford Station to the new Queen Elizabeth Park, but it's completely under the control of, of a private entity. Uh, you have a proposal to build a garden bridge over the Thames, a crossing of London that was not there before, but also it may end up being a quasi-public Operation, it will always be open for available for functions. So when somebody hires it, you will then be able to have a space which supposedly was created for the public, but it's then closed um, to the public. Uh, and a, what was intended to be part of a network of open spaces, part of the network of moving around the city from place to place, actually becomes an obstacle, a barrier, a way of beginning to close things down. The challenge at this time in our country and beyond is to try to bring the increasingly private guardians of public space into the awareness and the acceptance that by taking over public space, uh, they are political figures and must be treated as such. Thank you very much, James. So our third speaker is Anna Mansfield, who is <coughs> director at Publica. So Publica are urban designers and researchers working in London who specialise in the design of public space. Spaces from 25 to 50 metres or whole neighbourhoods. We advocate for the consideration of every aspect of public space. There's no use saying that something is well designed, but it failed because of lack of sunlight, it's surrounded uses, it's a monoculture, that is design. We study an area intensively and from every angle because how else could we possibly think about adding anything useful? We work for local authorities including TfL, landowners, great estates, developers, tenant associations, amenity societies, parish councils, retailers, building occupiers and business improvement districts. These are our clients because people care more than ever before about the spaces around them and are now able to change and influence them. In fact, most of our work is actually for public-private partnerships. I'm splitting my statement into three areas, design, control and freedom. Design. Everywhere is owned or controlled by someone, whether it's a street by a transport authority or a garden square leased to an authority, a local authority by a trust. We make no distinction at Publica between design for the public sector or developer clients. The principles of good public realm are the same. 
I would add the caveat that we're unlikely to be approached by those who think that putting spikes in a doorway is a good idea. London has plenty of beautiful public spaces, but its life happens in the back spaces, streets behind, where it's quieter and less frenetic, and we probably do feel freer. If we design cities by focusing only on the set-piece public spaces and neglect everywhere else, then we quickly deaden the whole place. We survey places to see how they work, we watch, we map patterns of use, environmental conditions, noise, surrounding activity, overlooking. We have a library of good and more usefully bad case studies of all the things that deaden a public space. The guard in a yellow high-vis jacket is easily the most effective. (laughs) It's not often gates. Our great parks and churchyards close at dusk, but they feel very free. Yet the open, windswept expanse of paving, designed to be obviously different to its surroundings, with trees raised up in huge planters because it was just too costly to put them in the ground... Superficially, that's open, but you know the opposite immediately. Is every space for everyone? No. Most teenagers wouldn't be caught dead in the same space as me and my one-year-old. Trying to design everything for everyone everywhere creates awful public space. Is there room for some private space? Yes. The public space of the city has always been mixed and made up of parks, gardens, graveyards, courtyards, and its public streets. When we say public space, I think we also mean civic, not just something implied by ownership, but something that is common and shared. It's a balance. We are in trouble if that balance is lost and there's no room for random events or spontaneity and the only acceptable use of space is drinking coffee while a child wanders through holding some balloons. We are in the midst of an extraordinary construction boom. We also live with a lot of bad buildings and terrible spaces from the last one when a multitude of mean, unusable space was created without any consideration as to why we'd actually want it. They are usually referred to as space left over after planning or slow up. In planning trade-off, you could build more if you provided public realms, something authorities seldom have funds to pay for. We were asked to look at a large development which was completed less than 10 years ago. Its buildings are alright, but it's the layout of the plan itself which dated. It was totally inward-looking, cut off from surrounding streets. To cycle there, you need to enter through a dangerous maze of service ramps. So, And every space inside was also inward-looking. They were all made of the same materials. In effect, it was an island site. None of it looked like London. It cut the life out of the city, which is a huge mistake and very difficult to reverse that. But the way we look at importance and creation of public space is definitely changing. Five years ago, we were asked to look at these terrible overshadowed spaces, and now we're asked to come in and look at unpicking traffic directories, streets that were designed for the car, and now it's time to return for people, and also the great civic spaces like Hanover Square. Let's talk a little about control. Our team have been picked up by the police for photographing in Maidenhead in London, carry letters to explain why they might be drawing in a courtyard. We live in an age of fear of each other or anything unusual, and spatial controls are used to contain behaviour. A map in my local paper sets out the boundary on a public spaces protection order, accompanied by a list of prohibited behaviours. Most are antisocial, but none of them are illegal. They now potentially carry a penalty for doing them on one side of the street. The definition of antisocial behaviour is behaviour by a person which causes or is likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress to one or more persons not of the same household as the person. As we live at ever-increasing density, that is pretty much the description of a city. (laughs) Environmental antisocial behaviour is where it gets particularly interesting. The incident is not aimed at an individual but targets the wider environment, e.g. public spaces. Antisocial behaviour can mean the use of a space by many is made unbearable by few, and that is a real problem. Nevertheless, for this debate, I think it's interesting to consider that our access to safe and pleasant space is protected by law, yet the lines of what is acceptable behaviour are uncertain. And it gets much more uncertain if it's not the police doing the policing. And I'll finish with a few words on freedom. In New York, where the idea of creating public space in exchange for greater floor areas came from, there is a strange reversal because the private spaces are now more libertarian, meaning that you can smoke in the tiny pocket Paley Park but not in Central Park, meaning the Occupy Wall Street protesters chose Zuccotti Park because it's a privately owned public space, or POPs, which are not subject to city curfews and many of them are required by law to be open 24 hours a day. In Times Square, the debate has moved to ripping out $30 million worth of pedestrianisation and turning it back to car use because people have just started to use it however they want. Maybe the spaces of freedom are the ones where none of us are supposed to be, the high line before it became a public space. I grew up in Essex, and I've just realised that it's not that usual to go camping with other teenagers in a working aggregate quarry, but it was brilliant. And you can probably find freedom on a Soho street, and definitely in a quarry, but it's a slightly weird middle ground of some of the newer public spaces where this freedom is easily lost. 
New public spaces alongside buildings are not an extension of a corporate lobby. They are not an extended open-air shopping mall. They are part of the fabric of the city and the ground plane belongs to us. Therefore, we deserve properly designed, useful and interesting public spaces of every scale and type. Thank you very much. So we're all antisocial. I like that idea very much. Um, so our next speaker is James Welch, who is Legal Director of Liberty. James. Thank you very much. It's the clues in the title, I'm Legal Director, so I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to do a bit of a sort of legal roundup, if you like, and try and put some of the legal perspective on what's been said, particularly in relation to protest. Protest rights are protected in this country by... Articles 10 and 11 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Article 10 protects freedom of expression. Article 11 protects freedom of association. Uh, Those are given effect in our law by the Human Rights Act, and the Human Rights Act obliges public authorities to respect those rights. James talked about people perhaps wanting to protest in Trafalgar Square. If you're stopped from protesting in Trafalgar Square, you have legal redress because the body that owns Trafalgar Square, uh, the Great London Authority, the Mayor's Office, uh, is a public authority and is therefore bound to act compatibly with human rights standards. So if you get into dispute about what you're allowed to do in Trafalgar Square, you can potentially bring a case. And one of my colleagues has a judicial review starting next month in the High Court where we are challenging uh, restrictions placed on occupied democracy uh, when they wanted to protest in Parliament Square. We say there's some reasonable restrictions put on that, and we're arguing the case in the court. The particular problem I find around space of freedom is the increasing privatisation of public space. Uh, we see that in vast areas of the country, particularly areas which are being regenerated, the quid pro quo, if you like, for a large corporation agreeing to regenerate an area, is that they then end up owning it. So Canary Wharf is perhaps a very prominent example of a large area of city space uh, that is privately owned. And we were involved a few years ago with an attempt by uh, people who cleaned for some of the large corporations that are based in Canary Wharf, paid very low wages. They wanted to protest about this. Uh, But when they announced their intention to protest in the big square in the centre of Canary Wharf, they were told by the owners of Canary Wharf they couldn't do that. Uh, because it was privately owned land, they were the landowners, they could determine absolutely what happened there, and I think they actually went off to court and got an injunction. Uh, The problem was only solved uh, because Transport for London was prepared to allow uh, these people to protest in a sort of semicircle of land in front of the entrance uh, to the tube station. So they went and protested there, we went and legally observed, and at one point it had been agreed in advance, they were allowed to walk off that semicircle uh, and disappear from Canary Wharf by a particular route. Total control of the space uh, by the private owners of the land. This is an issue which uh, Liberty's tried to raise through the courts. One of the first cases that I was involved with uh, at Liberty, and I've been at Liberty for a decade and a half, uh, was a case in the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg <coughs> brought by a community group from Washington, Newtown, uh, in Tyne and Weir. You may know Washington Newtown, it's one of these places it was built, it was all publicly owned, all the land was publicly owned, uh, but in the course of the, uh, the 90s, I think, the shopping centre and surrounding grassland that basically is the centre of this town was sold off to a private company. Uh, there was also talk of building on a local playground, and a group was set up, this group Washington First, in order to protest about that, and they wanted to solicit the views of their fellow citizens. They wanted to get uh, signatures on a petition uh, against the plans to build on this area, of, uh, on this playground. Uh, so they went off to the centre of their town, the shopping centre, and put up a store. Mm-mm-mm, not allowed, said the owners of the uh, shopping centre, and they refused permission. I think they eventually got permission from one of the stores uh, within the shopping centre to collect signatures on the petition there, but they weren't allowed to set up even outside the entrance to the shopping centre because that was owned uh, by a private body. So we took a case on their behalf to the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg arguing that this was a breach of their rights under Articles 10, Freedom of Expression and 11, Freedom of Association. Um, 
the government in response made the point, well, you know, this isn't our problem, we're the government, this is privately owned land, these people have rights as well, they have right to property which is also protected by the Convention, uh, you cannot assert a right here to do this. And we argued, look, the problem here is with the law as it stands in the UK in that you have areas which, although they may be privately owned, are clearly areas of common value we put forward a notion of quasi-public space, that is, space that might be privately owned, but is to all intents and purposes uh, somewhere that people would view as public and sought to argue that where you have quasi-public space, people should be allowed to exercise their right to protest, right to um, associate uh, with others and to make their political points heard. Unfortunately, we didn't get very far uh, in that case uh, we lost uh, cases in Strasbourg generally heard by seven judges and we lost 6-1 uh, <laughs> we had one enlightened judge who saw and wrote a dissenting judgment to which he made clear that this was con- going to be a considerable problem the way the world is going with considerable sort of areas of public space what people view as public space being privatised uh, this was going to be a, an increasing problem unfortunately that case hasn't yet been moved on, it's still good authority, it is still used by the courts in this country to stop people protesting not only in privately owned land but also uh, sometimes on publicly owned land when the courts are asked to adjudicate on whether the public authority concerns should have allowed people to protest there. But I think it is an issue, I think we do have to develop notions of quasi-public space in order that in, uh, as more and more land undoubtedly will be privatised, people can still have the right to protest. James, thank you very much. Now, our final speaker is Kenny Ash, founder partner of Ash Secular. Thank you. Well, it's really interesting to hear about these ideas of care and quasi-public space because um, we're architects and urbanists who are, are really fascinated by the threshold between public um, shades of public space and 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 those moments at which. Um, that um, ownership or maintenance regime or governance changes and whether we can, um, um, in say a current project we have which is a large linear park in Hackney Wick between Fish Island and Hackney Wick, um, whether we can make um, expand a towpath pushing fingers of park into um, a dense development of residential um, and cultural and retail space um, and still keep the um, this part feeling like a place where which isn't finished, which it's is a place of um, where people can extemporise and and grow things in micro allotments and create events and um, create a, um, a living narrative environment. But I'm here really not to talk about those kind of mushy things because Zoan's asked me to talk about physical space, and um, in fact. Um, you know, there is an idea that physical space is an objective place where <coughs> we can talk about um, how, how to do the good stuff, how to make really good public space, and perhaps there are some ingredients that um, we can pinpoint, learn from each other about how to do it better. I guess that there is really a flaw in that argument. Firstly, spaces are completely different, and isn't that great? But secondly, that um, it's a two-way relationship. You could make a south-facing Yang Gale, you know, a paradise, which um, with the right kind of steps and things, which might get rejected from the body politic because people just felt it smelt wrong. You know, it, it, it felt a bit corporate, or it was um, had taken out something which was really cool that people um, had an affection for. So we've it's. What I'd say is that it really is a kind of moving target and we can't really expect as kind of urbanists to like throw that dart and hit the right point, but that we need to be quite um, willing to um, um, fight for the right to experiment and try things out at a one-to-one scale with people in a neighbourhood and make authenticity through time and um, events and um, the, the passage of, of doing doing public space together, which um, doesn't mean it's easy because obviously um, you make it great for one set of people and um, other people might feel excluded. 
Um, but we, we feel that um, although we've been very lucky as architects and have been invited by clients to explore um, publicness in public space, we did, for instance, a carnival centre, the UK Centre for Carnival Arts, which is the ultimate, um, uh, I suppose, enactment of public space, is the carnival which takes over the streets. And at that time, we were very influenced by um, a book by um, Mikhail Bakhtin called Rabelais and His World, which was looking at um, the literary um, uh, heritage of Rabelais and the way that he described the common people and what they did um, in the city, um, how the kind of um, the grotesque, the humour, the, the bodily humours of, of people um, gathering together would... would um, um, enliven the city and how that was um, allowed at times of feasting when the church and all the powers that be let it happen for a few days after Lent there'd be this breakout of practically rioting and feasting and all okay. sorts of stuff and that allowed um, the, the control to return because people w- would have that valve of freedom in the city so um, we have been lucky in that way, but it's never been enough because basically clients are not really interested in um, digging up problems for themselves when they're going for a planning application. And by opening things up to, well, what could this place be if it was super free? Um, you want to ask a lot of people, you want to get a lot of people involved in it before it's gone to, to planning. And it's just, um, well, it's, it, it's not asked of um, clients um, by the planners, maybe that's wrong but we as architects, as their servants can't always demand that so what we've done is um, set up a kind of little side think tank at Ash Sacula called um, Adaptable Neighbourhoods where we can um, in at varying degrees depending on our resources and everything, try to um, it sort of um, prove our arguments or disprove our arguments but one of them for instance was a street market which was dying near where our office is called um, Leather Lane Market it's the longest street market in Camden one of the longest in London and it was basically just dying and shrinking because they dug it up for um, relaying the water lines and then they put up the fees and they would made it harder to park and you know, we were dealing with um, just watching this market shrink. So we, we set up a website called Leather Lane Stars, and it was saying, well, it's not the paving that's been put down in Camden. It's these guys who get up in the morning and, and animate the public realm. They are really the rain and shine stars the, of the public realm. And we need to um, recognise that it's everything from the waist up which makes public space and, and not just what we walk on. <coughs> and another thing we did, which was completely crazy in, in retrospect, um, was we went um, in for a competition with no prize, but a piece of land in London, um, which was called Meanwhile London, before the Olympics, and won the right to occupy a space opposite Canning Town tube station. And this project has just closed, but it was four years of building a small actually quite a large village in the middle of London and seeing how radically open we could make this space. And that involved an active care or hosting of the people coming into it. And there were two grand entrances at both ends. And what we were looking for was um, a mixity that you don't find everywhere in public space, Um, despite the fact that London is tantalisingly diverse and fantastic it's not always possible to kind of harvest that. And so what we wanted to do is make a place of alterity, a place where you could fall into conversations the, with um, you know, a, a, a very rich um, Indian millionaire working at Canary Wharf and, and um, a, a single mum and you know, all of those um, uh, mixes of ethnicity and of social um, you know, standing. Um, seemed to be possible in this space. So, yeah, we were quite heartened by that um, informality because when we talked to people, they, they said, this isn't like a park. You know, in a park, you have to have a dog or a child under the age of eight um, in order to sort of feel like you've got the right to, you know, go there, sit on a park bench or anything. This is like 
a living room for the neighbourhood. This is a place that you can just hang out and have teas in. So my plea would be, let's have a lot more beer gardens, let's have a lot more tea gardens, let's have lots of variety um, and reasons for people to be outdoors and meeting each other. Thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you to all of our five speakers. There's some really interesting um, ideas there. Um, much food for thought. I can see lots of people... Um, scribbling away uh, during those talks. I imagine there'll, there'll be some questions, but if I might uh, begin them uh, myself, I suppose with something of a, of a, a provocation in some ways, I mean, I, picking up on what you were saying, Kenny, about um, the carnival and that, that sort of release valve in some ways. Um, uh, these spaces where you can go wild and then that serves to legitimise all the the times when you don't uh, have that sort of sense of um, uh, complete uh, uh, freedom. And I, I was sort of wondering to what extent one could think of public space as that similar um, type of sort of carnival moment, space where actually you, know, you have a certain degree of freedom and it therefore serves to legitimise all the spaces where you don't and to legitimise all the other structures, the economic social structures that determine so much of our lives. Um, so actually, public space is acting a little bit of a, as a decoy in, in that regard. James? Well, I, I was thinking, um, as, as people were talking, about how we're actually talking about a number of slightly different things here. Um, and the, the, the whole public-private thing can be a bit of a red herring. I think um, somebody did touch on the fact that um, sometimes... A, a private space is actually the, the freest space that you have. I mean, some of, the, some of the bitterest battles in London, I think I'm right in saying, have been over the right to continue to have a club going in some particular place when somebody who thought they could make more money out of the building. But it was all taking space, place within this sort of private framework. Uh, and it was an argument that this was a, a community facility. I think the Blue Note Jazz Club was, a, was an example in, um, in Stoke Newington. Um, it was a private club, uh, and you came in, you, you paid a membership fee, um, and you, you paid an entrance fee, and uh, things went on there that were of interest to, to the world of, of jazz. So that, that, is, that is one thing. Then you have the uh, question of spaces of <coughs> protest. Um, and it struck me very strongly, listening to what people were saying, that um, yes, this is all very true, but ultimately it's a protest um, and um, it may be that the first thing you have, the first item on the agenda, is to force the authorities to um, to uh, to listen to your right to protest. Uh, I mean, the the people on um, London may seem a very long way from from Kiev and, and Cairo, um, but the, I don't believe the uh, the protesters on on the Maidan Square in Kiev actually had the permission of the of the government to. Uh, to hold out for um, 100 days or however long it was against the, uh, the assaults of the riot police and, and all the many other examples from around the world. But then there's that third issue of, of free space, which is the question of the resistance to that, um, that creeping um, feudalisation of society where everything you do and everywhere you go involves people paying a little fee to do something, to, to, to cross a road, to cross a bridge, uh, to go there, to go to, to go to this place, to to have um, at the airport of London, the the gateway to this country, turned into a into a shopping centre full of crappy chains. Um, this this way that you're bound down by these little sort of feudal mini taxes everywhere you go, um, and and that is a different sort of continual sphere of of resistance and the need to assert the right to. Uh, to communal ownership of, of public space from those uh, moments when you're actually talking about some, a matter of life and death, a, a question of, of, of bringing down an unjust government. I mean, is there, in some sense, um, a need for more normality to return to, to, to public space, to allowing people to hang out without looking odd? I mean, it's got, it's got quite bad in the States where really you shouldn't be walking, except in areas that have a walkability, you know, sort of tag. Um, but, I mean, it, it seems like sort of protests would be a natural extension of discussion 
that would be had in the public realm and that it's very difficult to for climate camp to sort of pop up and not just feel that their agenda has been taken by the kettling discussion <coughs> because um, there, there's been sort of uh, there is a kind of a ring fencing of that and an and, and, and isolating of that protest and what we need to do is get a kind of a broader bedrock of public discursiveness, if you like, onto which those things can naturally evolve, maybe with more generations involved, because it does tend to be, um, activists tend to do it for a while, and it doesn't spread enough through the age groups. Lizzie, I think maybe you could reflect on, on some of that. I mean, I kind of was fascinated by your description of... of um, Paris and Vienna, and that the, the way that there's this sort of double edge to those those interventions. On the one hand, creating these new public spaces for people to promenade, to shop to some degree, but then they also have that, and corresponding to that sort of bourgeois idea of individuality, but then also acting uh, you know, physical structures acting in the same way uh, to allow control of perhaps a different social class mm-hmm. could, could you maybe sort of elaborate on that a little bit more perhaps in sort of light of what, what, what Kenny was saying about that idea of people going through stages of protesting at a certain age mm-hmm. or, or you know, perhaps people protesting from a certain social cultural background yeah I mean I think one thing that's kind of interesting if you think of the, the clearing of those grand boulevards I mean the, the really powerful marches take place on those same grand boulevards don't they and James was talking about the street as the one really open space that there still is of, of course that's only the case if it hasn't been blocked off and people aren't being channeled in certain directions um, but the, the there are huge historical ironies really in the way that uh, that it is the, the very large spaces that were opened up for, um, in order really to control populations on one level, um, but at the same time also to make mobility easier and to make moving through the city easier and to make getting around easier, to make the city work better as a capitalist whole, a, a, a workshop as Hausman called it. Um, those same spaces are, are the sites of protest so Tahrir Square in Cairo, for instance, is, is an enormous traffic roundabout um, that if you, look at, and if you look back into its history, uh, it, is the, the, it was designed and laid out very much on a, a kind of European houseman model of um, getting away from the tiny little um, uh, kind of warrens of streets in the, the, old, uh, the old city and, uh, and opening that up to, in a way that was supposed to make control of subject populations much easier. Um, and yet those same spaces are the places where, where the most effective protests are, being ta- are taking place. What makes them effective too, of course, is the fact that you can see them, you know, and that they can be photographed and that they can be broadcast, uh, and that they can then be, um, all those uh, representations of those spaces can then be disseminated very easily too. Um, so that sense of visibility and publicity is also extremely important. Um, and it's another flip side of the, the uh, clearing away of, of the old private enclosed spaces where lots of secret things could go on. So yeah, in, it's an immensely um, complicated area full of ironies, really. Yeah. Well, so following on from that, so the question um, uh, partly for James, partly for Anna. I mean, James, you talked about... Um, the, the privatisation of public spaces which came out very strongly against it in, in many ways and you're talking about how it goes sort of hand in hand so often with uh, regeneration and, and the emergence of the sort of notion of the quasi public space um, and I was just sort of wondering you know you kind of you walk through so many of these spaces and you're quite often you're not conscious of this, this kind of what is actually a very stark distinction between the public and private space because that threshold is very much smoothed over in the in the design, and I was sort of wondering if you, what your thoughts would be on that because you were, you were talking about developing notions of um, quasi public space, which is in some ways breaking down distinctions between public and private. Um, and I was sort of wondering what you thought about that, and I would like to put that to Anna as well, um, uh, because yeah, as someone involved in 
what so many of those sorts of design processes? I'm, I'm nothing. I'm, I don't know whether you talk about why. I have nothing against regeneration itself. Obviously, it's a fantastic virtue that lots of places are being regenerated, being made much more pleasant places to be. Uh, but I think the the, the, the problem lies as as Owen has indicated in the fact that you cannot necessarily distinguish between the two, that you might be sort of uh, one place, move a metre the other, another direction and go from publicly owned space to privately owned space. I mean, I uh, looked at this in relation to the, the space outside the Welsh Assembly, trying to work out, somebody contacted us saying that she wanted to hold up a placard, I was being told by the uh, people that work for the Assembly building she couldn't do it, and I had to go and look at maps to try and work out where in the surround of the Welsh Assembly building is a public space where it's going to be much more difficult for somebody to interfere with her rights as opposed to privately owned space where people can just turn up and say, uh, sorry, you can't hold up your poster here. So, I mean, I think there is a, a problem that these new spaces, people just don't realise the difference legally in being in one particular place as opposed to another place in meter away. I think probably because I, I look at them all the time. I see the difference immediately. I think that you can see it. You often see, you'll be walking down a street and it looks one way, and then you'll see a vastly different type of scale and type of paving immediately, and it'll be really clean, really, really clean. There's obsessive cleanliness in these spaces. And um, (laughs) the type of planting will be different, the type of shops will be different, they will largely all be commercial chains because of the control of letting lots of bigger things so I think you can see it and I think that is a big concern for lots of people and and developers because people are getting uh, getting wise to it and thinking they'd rather be in in a space that has some integrity that has some authenticity and is part of the rest of the city so hopefully some of the worst examples actually will almost be driven out by the market because it is a very competitive city and we choose where we go and I think by and large we choose to be in real places and real neighbourhoods. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk